The views and opinions expressed on this show are purely the views and opinions of the person who made them and do not necessarily reflect or agree with those of the show's commercial sponsors, its radio station affiliates, or Internet broadcast platforms. As the restriction on our God-given right to free speech manifests itself throughout the world, we are inspired by Jesus Christ's immortal words, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And we reserve the rights to all our words. Thank you, and now enjoy the show. Learn who rules over you, simply find out who you are not allowed to criticise. You are listening to ACH, I'm Andy, your host. Today, it's time for our Thursday show for the weekly visit of our dear friend, Dr. Peter Hammond. So let's bring him up right now. Peter, are you with us? I'm with you. Thank you, Andrew. Okay, thank you, Peter. And I just want to mention something about today's show. Now, this is going to be part three. It's going to be the final part of the real story of Stephen Mitford Goodson's expose of globalist general Jan Mm -hmm. Smuts, South Africa's worst prime minister, and why he wasn't assassinated, part three. Peter and I were having a chat before the show. Of course, Stephen Mitford Goodson produced books and research that very different from a lot of other people out there. He was able to find out some fascinating information. And I mentioned something that Peter read on last week's show, I believe, about how Jan Smuts was the actual writer of the Balfour Declaration. Now, I, as someone who put the synagogue of Satan together, I should know that. But that was the first I'd heard of it. And so it's interesting when you can look at the work of other people. And, and, and it's also relevant to... Sorry, not relevant. It's so important to history as a whole because history, like science, more and more evidence can come to light. Um, We need to be flexible as that comes in to to look at it. So I've really enjoyed this series and I'm looking forward to part three, the concluding part today. So, Peter, where would you like to start us off with part three? Yes, well, I'm sure many people think, well, you know, Jan Smutsi, South African, what can be so relevant about a South African to what has been going on in America, Britain, or Europe, or the world. And yet, Jan Smuts is one of the most influential globalists of the 20th century, and it's quite extraordinary. We really have needed an economist like Stephen Goodson, who is a whistleblower, as a man who was actually director of the Southern Reserve Bank, and he wrote the book Inside the Southern Reserve Bank and A History of Central Banking and the Enslavement of Mankind. And then what led him on to Jan Smuts is, well, who actually established the Reserve Bank in South Africa? Jan Smuts did in South Africa what uh, Woodrow Wilson did in America, made the Reserve Bank possible. And so uh, this is what got Stephen digging into finding out more about this fascinating, intriguing man who obviously was a genius. And it's extraordinary how much the New World Order globalist turned to him. I mean, he's the only man who was part of the British War Cabinet in the First and Second World War, aside from Winston Churchill, but the only one who actually signed both the peace agreements that ended the First World War and the Second World War and was involved in the Versailles Treaty, the creation of the League of Nations, 
wrote the preamble for the United Nations as well. He is a very key player in the development of the Commonwealth and of the State of Israel. Uh, he uh, started not only the South Reserve Bank, he is credited with being the founder of the Royal Air Force, the South African Air Force, and the Israeli Air Force. So he's one, the only person I can think of in history who founded three air forces, is officially credited with being the father of three different air forces. But the amount of other things he did, you know, like the Balfour Declaration and so on, the man is absolutely extraordinarily well positioned. He was a key player in getting South involved in three major wars. The Anglo-Boer War, which he basically drafted the ultimatum that led to the first, the Anglo-Boer War, the second Anglo-Boer War, 1899 to 1902. Uh, he played a double role in the um, Anglo-Boer War. I think it's been proven that he was an asset of British intelligence recruited at Cambridge and Stephen Goodson documents this very convincingly. But uh, he got South Africa involved in the First World War and the Second World War and uh, played a key role in both to the extent that he was on the British um, Imperial War Cabinet in the First World War and in the Second World War. And even more astoundingly, he was identified by King George that in the event of Winston Churchill's death or incapacitation, General Smith would be immediately appointed as the Prime Minister of Great Britain. So he was more of a Brit and more of a globalist than he was a South African leader to such an extent that whenever he travelled to England, the South African press spoke about him going home. And uh, that's why he was also described by D.F. Milan, one of our opposition leaders in South Africa, as Smutskovich. In fact, uh, Dr. D.F. Milan, who later became Prime Minister of South Africa, said that uh, General Smuts turned South Africa into a Jewish imperialistic war machine. And... Uh, just now, at this, this point, we're getting to the Second World War. We've been discussing his involvement in the Anglo War, the First World War, and the League of Nations, and so on. Now, uh, this uh, week, we get to the Second World War. And uh, following in Stephen Mitford Goodson's book, he showed that General James Barry Herzog, the Prime Minister of South Africa, was super popular. He had just won five elections in a row. For 15 years, he'd been South Africa's Prime Minister, every time beating smuts at the at uh, the election poll. So Smuts was not popular enough to be elected in South Africa. He was voted against each time. And uh, General Herzog was unassailable. He was super popular. And his policy was officially South Africa first. So General Herzog had expressed concerns to such an extent that he had actually written cables to the Chancellor of Germany, apologizing for the lies and distortions which were being published in the English language press in South Africa, pointing out that he had no control over these and these did not reflect the attitudes of average persons in South Africa. The, press in England, uh, the English press in South Africa was overwhelmingly owned by Jewish people who were very globalist and very much on the Marxist side. South Africa's Communist Party is one of the oldest communist parties in the world, I think the second oldest after England, and uh, uh, plainly the Marxists were super busy. I don't know how many people are aware that Karl Marx while he is alive, wrote a regular column for a Cape Town newspaper, and a daughter of Karl Marx is actually buried in Cape Town. She married Juta, who is a major publisher. All of our university textbooks all over South Africa to this day come from Juta. And uh, so a daughter of Karl Marx is actually buried in Cape Town, but I'm getting away from our subject. So on uh, 
uh, during the Czechoslovakian crisis of September 1938, uh, General Smuts and General Herzog had agreed that in the event of hostilities erupting in Europe, South Africa should became, be, uh, remain neutral. Well, that was 1938. Well, 1939, everything changed. So the 1st of September 1939, Germany was tricked, forced into a trap of uh, getting involved in the war in Poland. Um, there were one and a half million Germans living in Poland. They were being abused and mistreated. There was a city like Danzig, which was 98% German, which was ethnically German, had been German for hundreds of years, but the Versailles Treaty had handed over to Poland. And there were a lot of acts of provocation. Obviously, that doesn't fit in the narrative, but Stephen Goodson brings out the fact that actually thousands of Germans had been killed in Poland and Germany was being compelled to intercede and intervene and they'd given ultimatums, but the United States government of Franklin Delano Roosevelt had been behind the scenes passing on um, all kinds of empty promises to the Poles, encouraging Poland not to come to any kind of arrangement with Germany, not to hand back the German majority territories to reverse the injustice of Versailles, uh, because it was recognized that Germany wanted an alliance with Poland. Poland was very much like Germany. It was run by basically authoritarian, military-orientated government who were anti-communist. And so Germany wanted an alliance with Poland uh, in their campaign against the Soviet Union and against communism. But the United States promised all sorts of things to Poland that they never delivered uh, if Poland would remain um, negative to Germany's attempts to come about with a negotiated settlement. And therefore, uh, Poland refused uh, Germany's requests and demands. And uh, then American government also cajoled Britain and France into offering a war guarantee to Poland, a blank check, basically, that Poland, if any part of Poland was in any way infringed or threatened by Germany, they would declare war on Germany. Now, this was not a reciprocal arrangement. Poland was not in an agreement with Britain. Britain had never had an alliance with Poland in history before that date. Britain had never given a war guarantee to any country before that date. And I think it's been well documented by uh, Pat Buchanan in his book, uh, The Unnecessary War, how Britain lost to empire and the West lost the world, um, how this was so unprecedented, probably the worst, most irresponsible political action in the history of Britain, if not all of foreign affairs. But more seriously than that, um, President Herbert Hoover, in his book Freedom Betrayed, A Secret History of America's Involvement in the Second World War, documents that this was not something that came from Britain, that something that came from America. The U.S. government of Franklin Delano Roosevelt was engineering the governments of Europe, manipulating the situation to have a European war, out of which America would eventually uh, emerge much stronger because Europe would be bankrupted, Britain would be bankrupted, Britain would be forced to hand over much of her empire and gold and so on to the United States, and the United States profited in every way from the Second World War and emerged the superpower which Britain had been unquestionably beforehand. And by manipulating Britain into this position where they went to war to bankrupt the empire, America was positioning itself to replace Britain as the world's number one superpower. And uh, that comes out from especially President Herbert Hoover's book, Freedom Betrayed, which was suppressed for many, many decades, half a century actually, but it's finally out. Anyway, Stephen Goodson shows that Germany 
was basically forced into uh, acting against Poland. And uh, obviously behind Poland were other forces, globalists who were trying to bring about this conflict. And when Germany invaded Poland on the 1st of September 1939, uh, South Africa went into an emergency cabinet meeting, convened at the Prime Minister's residence at Kruleskew, that's the house that Cecil Rhodes built, where the Prime Minister met. And for three hours, Prime Minister Herzog argued without notes in favour of neutrality. He ridiculed the notion that Smuts was propagating that Hitler was out for world domination. He said, that's not possible. I mean, really, Germany didn't have a navy even 10% as large as the Royal Navy. It didn't have one single aircraft carrier. How could Germany be working for world domination. You can't have world domination without a massive navy. And uh, the Royal Navy was unassailable, and the Kriegsmarine was actually minuscule compared. And not only that, but uh, what does a border dispute in Poland have to do with South Africa? And uh, he contended the Polish question was purely local politics in Eastern Europe. It had nothing to do with South Africa. And in the event of war, Britain may continue to use the naval base for the Royal Navy at Simonstown, but South Africa should remain neutral. But um, General Smuts, being the pawn of the international bankers, challenged this and claimed that any threat to Poland uh, was in reality a threat to the security of the whole world, which, of course, is absurd. And nevertheless, this drama kept unfolding, and by the 5th of September 1939, uh, Smuts engineered what was effectively a coup d'etat and ousted Prime Minister uh, Barry, uh, James Barry Herzog and seized power himself. And uh, this is interesting considering that the Allies described themselves as the democracies. Not that there was anything democratic about Poland or the Soviet Union or South Africa at that stage. For example, at, um, General Smuts at this crisis point requested the Governor General of the Cape of, of South Africa, Sir Patrick Duncan, to um, dissolve Parliament and to announce an immediate general election. And the goal was to test if the population really supported going to war. And South Africa had no vital interest in what was going on in Eastern Europe. And uh, Herzog was refused. Uh, governor General Sir Patrick Duncan was a friend and admirer of Smuts, and he had been a former member of Lord Alfred Milner's kindergarten, the leaders that Milner brought in off the Anglo-Boer War to govern the Transvaal and the Free State. So, so Patrick Duncan was certainly a globalist and in the pockets of the Rothschild bankers and so on. So he refused to call for a, a general election or a referendum, and therefore General James Barry Herzog, most popular Prime Minister of South Africa, was forced to resign. Effectively, he was a victim of a coup d'etat engineered with great skill by a General Jan Smuts. So South Africa declared war on Germany, which was a bit ludicrous, because at that moment, 1939, South Africa had only 5,300 permanent force members, only two more, uh, old redundant World War I tanks, Air Force had two Blenheim bombers, and 26 obsolete Hawker Furies and Hots. The South African Naval Service had three officers, three ratings, and an Angelus training ship, uh, the General Botter, so we effectively had no Navy at that time. Yet 12,000 South Africans would die in this senseless, fruitless war of the Second World War. 
and uh, including an uncle of the author of, Steve, of Stephen Richard Goodson. His uncle died in Rome in 1944 uh, from shrapnel from bomb. So large numbers of South Africans, English and Afrikaans speakers, were very much against the servile declaration of war. And the average South African at that time perceived that the sole interest of this war was for the international bankers, the same people who had come to destroy the Transvaal and the Free State for gold, um, were trying to destroy Germany, Italy and Japan because they had a usury-free banking system that did not have Rothschild banks. And it was understood by the average person in the street in South Africa at that time, this is a banker's war. This is more because Germany is refusing to take foreign loans and uh, as a result uh, of their bartering system, Germany would, for example, be selling uh, VW, Volkswagen, Beetles to Argentina in exchange for meat being shipped from Argentina. They were doing uh, trade by bartering instead of going to international bankers. And uh, the uh, these days at the petrodollar back then would have been through the British pound. So at that stage, Professor Arthur Laurie, Professor of Chemistry and Fellow of the Royal Society of Edinburgh, he wrote a book, The Case for Germany, A Study of Modern Germany. And he said the real reason why Britain was starting a war with Germany is because Germany and Italy are not taking foreign loans. They are, uh, they've got usury-free banking. They've got state banks, not privately owned Rothschild banks. And uh, because of the internal economy and trading, they've eliminated the international banker from their countries. And those who make profits by playing with international foreign exchanges are being sidelined. This is doubtless the reason why our government has been forced by the City of London bankers to start a trade war with Germany. So that's what a professor in Edinburgh had to say at the time. And uh, there was a whole lot of interesting anecdotes put here in the footnotes by Stephen Goodson that Smuts was very unpopular with the troops in the field. More than half of the South African soldiers refused to sign the oath of general service that they would serve anywhere in the world because according to South African law, the Southern Defence Force was only to defend South Africa's borders. They were not to serve anywhere else in the world. And James Barry Herzog's National Party government had brought that law in to prevent what had happened in the First World War, the Union Defence Force being abused to take Southwest Africa, Deutsche Sudwest Africa, away, um, mainly to get the diamonds under the control of De Beers. And so there was this um, uh, hostility to us being foreign mercenaries for the British Empire. And so Smut decided to bypass this by getting people to make a voluntary oath that they are volunteering to serve anywhere in the empire, which was against the law, but nevertheless, more than half the South African soldiers refused to sign that oath. Smut was actually booed by the whole audience of South African troops in Cairo, and this according to S.E.D. Brown, who was an intelligence officer in Cairo at the time, and he did censoring mail, and he could tell how very unpopular General Smuts was with the South African soldiers. So, uh, interesting comments again from this uh, Edinburgh professor, Professor Laurie. He said, if the economic methods devised by Germany are successful, and if they spread to other nations, if Germany succeeds in the policy of establishing a permanent peace in Europe, the high financier will cease to be able to exist. It is therefore their main interest today to purge and to plunge the four powers into war in order to destroy Germany and Italy who do not have Rothschild-controlled banks. So that was recognized even by economists in Britain at the time. Now, there were a lot of organizations mobilized against Smuts. 
One was the South African Gentile National Socialist Movement, the Greyshirts, or Greyshemter, uh, who had been founded by Louis Weichart in 1933. And then there was the Oswald Brunfuchs, or the Oxwagon Sentinel, which is a cultural organization started by Janse van Rensburg, a former administrator of the Free State, Secretary of Justice under Smuts. Well, van Rensburg uh, apparently was serving the cause of the Smuts secret police. So Smuts was running internal affairs and he controlled the secret police at the time. And it seems that the Osobar Brunswick was definitely a um, false flag operation in order to bring in opponents of the government policy so they could spy on him. It was a front. It was run by uh, Freemasons, provided an escape valve and to split conservative Afrikaners. And so there were a whole lot of leaders in South Africa, major cultural leaders and political leaders who were detained in concentration camps throughout the Second World War because they were perceived as disloyal, because they opposed the idea of South Africa being involved in the war, or because they expressed any sympathies with Germany or were critical of Britain, or Smuts, or Winston Churchill. So for your opinions, you could be detained in a concentration camp, and that included Balthazar Johannes Foster, or B.J. Foster, who later became Prime Minister of South Africa and was um, heavily implicated in the assassination of President H.F. Favut back in 19... Uh, forward in 1966. But at this stage, um, B.J. Foster used being detained in Coffeefontein concentration camp as part of his credentials for being a right-wing and a nationalist. But in fact, he is a clandestine liberal. He'd been brainwashed by Professor Malherber, a Freemason while studying at the University of Stellenbosch, and Foster was a paid smuts agent. He had actually received a thousand pounds prior to his penetration of Brunswick. He received training as a secret policeman. And uh, there's an affidavit attached to this book written by uh, Jan Esterhazen, whose father was interred with Foster in the same bungalow, number 10 in Coffeefontein. And Esterhazen attests that Foster received monthly visits from Julius I, who was the uh, father-in-law of Joe Slover, who married his daughter. Joe Slover was the KGB colonel, K a Lithuanian Jew, who became one of the main controllers of Nelson Mandela in the future. So Julius First, the Southern Communist Party member, regularly visited Foster while he was in prison. And Foster definitely tipped off the commandant of the prison about the intended breakout. And after he had met with him, they came straight and knew exactly where the uh, tunnel was and were able to break into that and destroy the planned escape. So Smuts was... Um, using paid agents like Foster to infiltrate the Osava Brunswick, which was basically a shell. And they, when a German Abwehr agent came to South Africa to infiltrate, delivered by a submarine, uh, he was able to be um, uh, betrayed easily from within the agency and arrested because, and all the opposition was neutralized because Smuts controlled the internal opposition through the Osava Brunswick, which was just to show, very much like how uh, Joseph Stalin started all kinds of groups, monarchist, anti-Bolshevik groups in Europe after the Bolshevik Revolution in order to neutralize and um, pre-infiltrate all anti-communist activity in Europe. And uh, they received a lot of aid for that too um, from anti-monarchists. So 
the best way to neutralize your opposition is to start it and control it yourself. Well, interestingly, um, after the capitulation of France, June 1940, General Herzog proposed that peace be made with Germany and Italy and, and that South Africa accept the peace initiatives. Well, Smuts rejected this offer in a very high-handed way without consulting Parliament. At about this time, Smuts was appointed a, a field marshal of the British Army and invited to Britain to attend cabinet meetings, making speeches all around Britain to encourage people to fight until victory. And uh, also one of the first things General Smuts did was, as Prime Minister of South Africa, unelected Prime Minister of South Africa, was General Smuts donated 54 tons of South African gold reserves, 20 million pounds at that time, um, 128 billion pounds in today's money. So this was at the request of Churchill. Uh, this was money to be sent to America, and Franklin Delano Roosevelt sent his battle cruiser, the USS Quincy, uh, to Cape Town, to Simonstown, and at night secretly, these tons of gold were loaded up onto the ship, 54 tons of gold, and uh, the USS Quincy, traveling at top speed of 33 knots, delivered the gold to New York to the Rothschild-owned U.S. Federal Reserve Bank. And this opened the uh, American Lend-Lease program to give vast amounts of aid to Britain and to the Soviet Union. So South Africa, unknowingly, without the people being informed or consulted, without discussion in Parliament, South Africa funded Lend-Lease with our gold. America, of course, never did anything for free. The Soviets didn't have to pay a single ruble for all the thousands of tanks and tens of thousands of trucks and hundreds of thousands of jeeps and millions of rounds of ammunition and millions of shells and vast amounts of uniforms and all kinds of equipment and railway um, material and everything you could imagine that the Soviet Union needed to stay in the fight, America provided and South Africa paid for, thanks to Smuts. So, while the Soviet army was rampaging through Eastern Europe and murdering people everywhere from Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, Poland, Katyn, Forest, Moscow, and all that, General Smuts uh, made a public speech how he doffs his cap to Stalin, how he admires him, and his admiration for Roosevelt, a remarkable man. And uh, the son of uh, Jan Smuts, uh, J.C. Smuts Jr., wrote in his father's biography, the impression that my father formed then and the one he carried throughout his life was that President Roosevelt was a man of great courage. He admired his long, dogged struggle against adverse public opinion and isolationism and the way he finally managed to bring America into the war, albeit with the providential help of Pearl Harbor. And so uh, Smuts was definitely a globalist who loved uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Joseph Stalin, Winston Churchill, and... Uh, Interesting, he was also friends with uh, Arthur Harris, Bomber Harris, or Butcher Harris, as others called him, who became chief of the Royal Air Force's Bomber Command. And uh, sadly, I'm very sorry to say it from a Rhodesian perspective, but Bomber Harris was a Rhodesian. He was a bugler in the 1st Battalion Rhodesia Regiment. He had fought with Smuts in the Southwest Africa campaign, the First World War, and Bomber Harris became the architect of the saturation bombing, strategic bombing, targeting of cities, targeting of civilians, uh, like Operation Gomorrah bombing Hamburg uh, for 10 days and nights until everything was burning and the people were uh, bombed in, back into Stone Age, as he put it. And then, of course, the bombing of Dresden, where at least 300,000 victims perished, 
75% of them women and children. Uh, in uh, That was the February 13th, February 14th, 1945, Valentine's Day gift to Dresden, the Venice of the North, one of the most beautiful cultural cities, an undefended city with no military significance at all. And that was Bomber Harris's works. So uh, Smuts had his pals all over the place, uh, causing mayhem. Uh, General Smuts devoted his energies now to the establishment of the United Nations Organization to provide a framework for the New World Order after the war. And they started to meet at Dumbarton Oats um, already in October 1944, setting up the United Nations. Smuts played the significant role of persuading Churchill and Roosevelt to accept Stalin's insistence on the right of the five great powers to have veto powers over the Security Council. And so the fact that the Soviets could veto any action of the Security Council during the Cold War was Smuts as the one who persuaded the British and American leaders to accept that. He was an active participant in the conference held in San Francisco, April 1945, which was chaired by Alga Hiss, a KGB agent. And Smuts was responsible for drafting the preamble to the United Nations Charter. Uh, he also unveiled a memorial plaque in honor of Franklin Delano Roosevelt at the Muir Woods Cathedral Grove outside San Francisco at about the same time. Well, Smuts had um, been involved not only in the starting of the United Nations, but also in the birth of the State of Israel. And he's credited with being actually the founder of the Israeli Air Force. And to this day, he's officially accepted as the founder of the Israeli Air Force. And uh, he was voted out of power in the first election South Africa had after the war, 1948, just like he'd lost all the elections before the Second World War. He lost the first election after the Second World War. Um, and so, the, and it's believed that the soldiers coming back from the war were the ones who most voted against him. South African soldiers recognized that they'd been pawns in Smuts's internationalist globalist plans. Well, he was the first uh, or I should say, he ensured that South Africa was one of the first countries in the world to recognize Israel as a de facto state, 24th of May, 1948. Well, two days later, he was voted out of office, 26th of May, 1948, when National Party came to power in South Africa. And so, as Smuts, in 1914, was appointed legal advisor to the South African Jewish Board of Deputies. He first met Chaim Wiseman, who was the second prime minister of Israel, um, when Shane Wiseman was professor of chemistry at the University of Manchester. So they met in 1917, about the time of the Balfour Declaration coming out. And it's um, revealed in this book that, in fact, it was Jan Smuts who drafted the Balfour Declaration, doubtless under the guidance of Shane Wiseman, who was his friend. Well, they were friends till Smuts' death. Uh, Smuts travelled to Rome via Palestine in 1918. He met the command of the Egyptian Expeditionary Force General Edmund Allenby and consulted with him about his plans and uh, what to be done about Palestine and Haifa and Damascus. At the Versailles Peace Conference, Smuts acted as a secret agent for Weizmann, reporting on everything that happened in the Chamber of Powers. He also drafted the regulations for the Class A mandate for Palestine. The final version was edited um, by Felix Frankfurter, a justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. And so um, in a book, A Study of Zionist Gentile Cooperation by Weizmann and Smuts, A Study in Zionist South African Cooperation by Richard Stevens, 
the friendship between Smuts and Weizmann is confirmed by the former chairman of the South African Zionist Federation, Nikolai Kirchner, uh, in Zionism and the Union of South Africa, 50 years of friendship and understanding published in Jewish Affairs. There's a particular dimension to the secret consort between Balfour and the Zionist leadership to betray the aspirations of the Palestine people. It was Weizmann's close friend and a future Prime Minister of South Africa, Jan Smuts, who was a South African delegate to the British cabinet during World War I, helped push the British government to adopt the Balfour Declaration and to make a commitment to construct a Zionist colony under British direction. So that's all in these books, A Study of Zionist Gentile Cooperation, um, which is published by Richard Stevens. So at the San Remo conference in 1920, Smuts telegraphed Lloyd George, who was also devoted Zionist, the Jewish demands for the mandated territory to include the Jordan Rivers and Latani Rivers, and the demands for increased immigration and industrial and agricultural developments. And so Smuts was offered the post of High Commissioner of Palestine in 1928, but he refused as he believed his most important duty was in South Africa. And in fact, without him, South Africa wouldn't have entered the Second World War on the British side. So uh, the position was taken by John Chancellor, former governor of Southern Rhodesia. He is a banker's person, and he ended up being the High Commissioner of Palestine. So in 1930, the Colonial Secretary, Lord Pasbury, uh, wrote a white paper to the Arab rights of 1929, recommending an end to discriminatory labor practice by the Zionists in a more pro-Arab position. Well, Smuts was roped in by Weizmann to um, oppose this, and it threw the Zionists and their friends into a frenzy, and basically they repealed all these recommendations for fair labor practices, um, managed to get in a letter to the Times signed by Smuts, Lord Balfour and Lord George, pressure on the British Prime Minister Ramsay MacDonald to cave in to the Zionist request and to continue the, um, the policies that had led to the Arab rights of 1929. When there were further Arab rights in 1937, the Peel Commission found great merit in the Arab complaints about Zionism, recommended that further immigration be suspended. Smut was again enlisted, wrote strongly worded letters to the colonial secretary, which reversed the intended policy. So Smuts played a very important role in all lead up to Israel's independence. On 9th of November 1938, Zionists from France staged a false flag operation in Germany known as Kristallnacht, or Night of the Broken Glass, to gain worldwide sympathy for the Jews and to scare them into fleeing Germany, hopefully to move to Palestine. And so British Parliament was about to adopt legislation guaranteeing Palestine to the Palestinians at this point, a German diplomat was murdered in Paris by a Jewish uh, Pole at the behest of the International League Against Anti-Semitism, and uh, false telephone calls and telegram instructions were issued by agents provocateurs to uh, lighters or district leaders and junior leaders who started to attack Jewish businesses and synagogues in Germany. This was a false flag operation which was successful enough to have burned down a number of buildings and maybe 89 people were killed. And when the German Chancellor heard about this, he was outraged and ordered immediate actions to stop it. And uh, in fact, Deputy Führer Hess issued very severe uh, condemnations of people involved and ordered the police to do everything they can to protect Jewish businesses from any kind of attacks, because this is a public relations disaster for them but it was a great success for the Zionist movement in getting more immigration from Germany 
many of whom ended up in Palestine. Uh, but uh, interestingly put here that uh, Gary Gibster, whose father served as a pilot in the Israeli Defense Air Force, said Jan Smuts was its founding father. And uh, there's books about that, including the story of South African Zionism, The Vision Amazing, published by Menorah Book Club, um, 1950, claimed Jan Smuts as the founder of the Royal Air Force, the South African Air Force, and the Israeli Air Force. Well, um, in recognition of his services to the State of Israel, streets have been named after Smuts, and the kibbutz has been named after Smuts as well, the Ramat Yohan, um, founded in 1932 in the Valley of Zebulun, in the shadow of Mount Carmel. And when Smuts was presented with a certificate recording the naming of the settlement after him, he declared, this document will go down in my family as one of my most sacred possessions. Whenever I am disheartened, whenever Salafka does not seem to rise to the occasion, I will go to that valley in Palestine, which bears my name for inspiration. So a bust of Jan Smuts was presented to the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, and Smuts attended a service in Israel to commemorate his lifelong services to Zionism, where he said, the Middle East has been asleep for centuries. I want to see Israel emerge as the vital force leading its neighboring countries along the paths of progress and peace. Uh, which I think he may be disappointed with the results, but that was the goal. Now, General Smuts um, was challenged by South Africans saying, do the Jews actually have any entitlement to the land uh, on any historic grounds? Because at that stage, it was coming out that 90% of the Jews living in Israel were Ashkenazim, uh, descended from non-Semitic people who are basically present-day southern Russia, what is today called Ukraine. In the 8th century, King Bulan converted his unruly pagan Turkish Mongoloid people of Khazaria to Judaism after having rejected Christianity and Mohammedism as alternatives. So he didn't want to choose either Christianity or Islam and choose, chose to rather convert to Judaism because that meant they could be at peace with both the Christians and the Muslims um, by being a third religion. And there are books on this, like The Thirteenth Tribe, and the invention of the land of Israel from holy land to homeland. Um, these books, documents, it's even the Jewish, uh, the Jewish World Encyclopedia of 1906, how the Khazarians were not in any way related to Abraham or Semitic, but that's an intriguing thing that, in fact, the very people who today are called Jews, in many cases, are not at all Semitic, not at all related to Abraham, but rather Ukrainians, which puts another look on what's going on out in Ukraine right now, too. Well, on the 11th of September, 1950, Jan Smuts died of a coronary thrombosis in his home in Irene, not far from Pretoria. And he, wa he was, um, of course, praised as a man with a distinguished career, an international statesman, shouted many honours. He had been awarded 29 honorary doctorates in his life. But uh, as far as his... Um, Credentials is um, uh, legacy in South Africa goes, he is described as treasonous and harmful, Volksflyer, a people's traitor. Uh, he had treated South African workers with contempt. He had been responsible for killing 535 white black miners and 152 black miners who were shot in the streets when they were protesting. He had mobilized the police and the army, even the Air Force and the tanks against protesters when there were demonstrations in the streets. He introduced the income tax, the totally unnecessary national income tax. 
He allowed a central bank to be set up, which enabled private banks to exploit the people of South Africa through usury. And uh, he laid foundations, which ultimately led to white population capitulating in April 1994 to the detriment of everyone, Stephen says. He also encouraged the setting of the worst type of Jewish immigrant from Lithuania, whose communist members played a leading role in destroying South Africa, including Joe Slover. He handed the country over to international bankers. He failed to achieve reconciliation between Afrikaners and English-speaking South Africans. He lacked vision um, to deal with the racial questions in South Africa. So, for example, Colonel Charles Stullett, leader of the Dominion Party, drew up a master plan for resolution of racial questions in South Africa. And Colonel Stullett's idea was the only way to do justice to blacks and whites is for each population group to have their own territory where they would um, have uh, self-government and self-determination in areas, which later was adopted by Dr. Hendrik Verwoerd. Uh, but Smuts didn't see that. He just um, had white rule, uh, actually, I should say, uh, Jewish bankers rule over the whites, uh, but the blacks had no real civil rights under him. So he neglected to put South Africa first. He is fanatically devoted to the British Empire and the New World Order. He worked tirelessly in the interests of the British Zionist Rothschild bankers. His defeat in the general election of 1948 showed that his work had been vain, and Smuts made a statement at the time, my work seems to go on and on and lead nowhere. So the life of Smuts can be seen as a parable of the way Western thinking and political decisions have been corrupted up to the present day. Genius, uh, without question, an amazing, hard-working person, but his psychic mentality, his spirituality, his holism, his whole idea of globalism and a holistic one-world order uh, ruled by British and Jewish bankers uh, led South Africa to three very unnecessary ruinous wars, contributed to two disastrous world wars, and uh, injected the world with these globalist institutions such as the Commonwealth, the League of Nations, and the United Nations. So a very important globalist figure, and having gone through that, you can well understand why Jan Smuts was not assassinated. Uh, there's some reviews, and there's at the end of the book a couple of um, interesting anecdotes and um, appendixes, including the fact that um, uh, when the Fort Tricker Monument was opened in 1938, he was not invited at all. Uh, he was uh, shunned by most um, patriotic South Africans. They did not name any building after Jan Smuts at Stellenbosch University. There's buildings at Stellenbosch University named after all the great um, people who became prime ministers who were ex-students like Favut and D.F. Milan. But until 1994, there was no building named after Jan Smuts. I'm now informed that there is a building named after Jan Smuts at Stellenbosch, but only by renaming a building after 94 when the Mandela uh, government came to power. So they certainly appreciate the importance of Jan Smuts. Interestingly, though, they renamed Jan Smuts Airport, Johannesburg's International Airport, after um, Oliver Tambu, who was head of the Southern Communist Party. So they didn't honor Smuts as being the name of the biggest uh, airport in Africa and in South Africa, but intriguing. So this is an amazing expose that Stephen Mitford Goodson's given us, generally Jan's Christmas Mutter debunking of a myth. That's the official title. But I think your title of 
South Africa's worst Prime Minister is probably more fitting. Uh, back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. Yes, it was really sort of um, kind of tongue-in-cheek thing because we had um, the previous series um, about um, the... Uh, Prime Min- Sorry, yeah, absolutely, who was assassinated. And it's very interesting when you look historically about people that are assassinated and it's always this so-called lone assassin. And when you dig deeper, they seem to have ties to the same people. And it's always this lone nut theory. And just like the um, what the mainstream try to give us and say, you know, politics, oh, it's all a bit of a mishmash, you know, anything can happen. There's no sort of conspiracy against you or anything like that. Well, if that was the case, sooner or later, they'd make mistakes that would go in our favour. But that never, yes. ever happens, Peter, does it? So the whole thing is completely choreographed and orchestrated. Um, we're just made suckers into believing that this political system is there to serve us when essentially a two-party system in in, in, in the... Um, Obviously, in South Africa, it's a one-party. It really is communist. So, I mean, no one's going to get in apart from the ANC, are they, Peter? Um, no, indeed. Uh, you know, this, this man, Smuts, was obviously an architect of the globalist New World Order that we've seen emerge after the First and Second World War, which um, has led to the betrayal of Africa uh, into the hands of so many Marxist dictators and so much of the destruction that we've seen around the world and in South Africa too. I mean, you just take South Africa, which was a first world nation with uh, a phenomenal economy and industry. Here, South Africa was leading the world in things like heart transplants. And, uh, well, we had the first C-section here in South Africa too, also in Cape Town. South Africa used to be a first world nation and the South African rand used to be stronger than the British pound, stronger than the US dollar. I remember that uh, when, when literally... I could uh, get three American dollars for one Rhodesian dollar and how the South African rand was much stronger than the British pound. We used to have a hard currency. Today, our currency is something like 20 rand to one pound uh, or, or less and uh, 19 rand to the dollar. It's um, Our currencies have been debased. We have power failures, sometimes several hours a day of no electricity, planned power failures. They call it load shedding, scheduled power failures. Uh, the water uh, interrupted where we can have a major city like Cape Town run out of water. Uh, you have potholes in the roads, chaos, looting sprees where the government can't seem to deal with it properly. And uh, such corruption that it's estimated that one third of our gross domestic product is stolen by government corruption. Just our ESCOM, that's the Electricity Commission for South Africa, provides electricity. They the CEO said a billion rand is being stolen every single month through corruption, government corruption. So all that's the fruit of this globalist new world order, which people like Smuts were architects of. And uh, we need to recognize what's been stolen from us. We need to recognize how the globalist agenda is nothing less than a destruction of Western Christian civilization. And we need to resist. The first thing is to know the truth. The truth will set us free. And then to resist the globalist new world order. Yes, absolutely, Peter. It really does seem more and more that prayer is the only answer, but we uh, get the truth out there as best as we can. You do a fantastic job with that. Uh, We've got a few minutes left and we can go over. Uh, I've got a a question for you. Now, folks, we're recording this at uh, currently 10.58 on Tuesday, 
uh, April 25th. And the reason that I mention that is because the two top headlines on the BBC website at the moment is live RAF flight leaves Sudan as UK evacuation operation starts. And the second headline is gunfire heard in Sudan as uneasy truce holds. Now, for those of you who aren't aware, Peter was actually instrumental in the formation of a country and I don't believe I've ever spoken to anybody who was involved in the formation of a country, and that was the country of South Sudan that was formed to essentially, I believe part of it was to protect Christians from uh, being persecuted by Muslims and what have you. But Peter, what are your thoughts on what is going on in Sudan? Because for me, you'd be something of an expert on the subject. Well, I do have some people who have links with intelligence and so on who say it's very interesting timing that... um, just shortly after the Sudan government signed an agreement with the Russian government for a naval base, a Russian naval base on the Red Sea, there's suddenly a US-sponsored coup d'etat, a revolution that's ousted the government, a government, by the way, in Sudan, which has been abolishing persecution and which has been allowing a measure of free speech and free um, uh, economy, uh, freedom and politics, which has not been seen before speaking about Um, getting rid of the apostasy laws and the flogging and death penalty for people leaving Islam or converting to Christianity. So we've been seeing tremendous progress in the governments in Sudan in just recent years, but now they made a move of uh, signing an agreement for uh, a Russian naval base on the Red Sea, and before you know it, there's suddenly a coup d'etat and they ousted, and there's no doubt with the people on the ground and the people I'm speaking about you've got military and police and political connections, that uh, this is an American Central Intelligence Organization-backed operation. They're ousting governments and trying to manipulate the international scene uh, as part of their sanctions against Russia campaign. So uh, people are not happy about the move. Of course, destabilizing a situation which was volatile at the best of times. Uh, We continue to do work in Sudan, um, continuing to publish reports on what's going on there, just had a Doctors for Life mission team in there recently doing um, well over 150 eye surgeries and delivering Bibles and audio Bibles and digital Bibles and trying to help the people in the Noob Mountains of Sudan. Um, there's a lot that's on the go there. We hope this isn't jeopardized by this highly irresponsible um, intervention by a secretive organization who seems to specialize in assassinations and revolutions and coup d'etats. Back to you. Thank you, Peter. Yes, that's uh, fascinating. And uh, we keep these people in our prayers who are going through all this uh, this nonsense that there's always so much more than meets the eye, but uh, you won't see any, hear anything or read anything of what uh, Peter just uh, intimated there on the BBC or any of the other mainstream places. I can say that because I go through them every day. And uh, the closest I got to it when I was first alerted was uh, com. But of course, Peter's got people over there. And isn't it interesting that as soon as they make a deal with uh, Russia to allow them to build a naval, naval base within a matter of days, if not weeks... Uh, there's some unrest in their country. Doesn't it look like all these colour revolutions that we see throughout the world? And it's always the same people that seem to benefit in the end. So, Peter, before we go, can you please let the audience know where they can find your work and how they can contact you? Yes. um, P. 
Peter at frontline.org. Today is my personal email, P-E-T-E-R at F-R-O-N-T-L-I-N-E, Peter at frontline.org.za. That is our um, my personal email address, and our website is www.frontlinemissionsa.org. So it's Frontline Mission SA, short for South Africa.org. Thank you, Peter. And folks, don't forget that the email address for Peter is in all the posts for our shows, along with Peter's extensive archive of pretty much all of our shows that you can go and listen to on his site. Of course, on here, they drop off after about three weeks or so. Uh, And all Peter's other websites, as well as the Frontline Fellowship one that he mentioned. So if you ever need to look up his information, just click on any of our show posts. And I've been including all that in there for a great well, a long time now, if not a matter of years. So that being said, I want to thank Peter so much for joining us today for a show entitled The Real Story of Stephen Mitford Goodson's Expose of Globalist General Jan Smuts, South Africa's worst Prime Minister and why he wasn't assassinated part three. I want to thank all of you for listening. I'll be back with you all tomorrow. And until then, folks, have a wonderful day and bye for now.